And so today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, let's go ahead and open up there. Ephesians chapter 2. You know, being a Christian is uh, an absolute blessing because um, we haven't really received justice. Uh, we have received mercy and we've also received grace. And so, you know, being a Christian means that when you give your life to Christ, the moment that you put your faith in Him, He saves you. You know, all your sins are forgiven, and you can know for sure that He's with you. He comes into your heart. And then when you die, you know, you're going to go to heaven. And He lavishes you with blessings. How many of you guys like to give to others? Do you guys like to give to others? Isn't it an awesome blessing when you can give? What if, what if you had like a, um, the money of, of someone like a Bill Gates or um, what's his name, Elon Musk or something? Yeah, imagine if you had all that money, you know, and then, you know, your kids come over and you can actually take them to get some good ice cream or maybe some good food or, or just different things that you would just continue to lavish on them because your resources are so vast. Well, that's how it is with God. I don't know if you guys realize this or not, but we're going to see it in our, in our study today that God has put all our sins on Jesus. He received, you know, the just punishment that we deserve. So there's justice. Uh, we deserved hell and lake of fire, but we're not going to get it because he's merciful. And not only that, he's also gracious. And what that means is all the riches, all the blessings, all the love, all the peace, all the joy, all that is good will be lavished and lavished and lavished and lavished upon your life forever. Forever. That's what, what's, you know, you're like, well, what's going to happen in heaven? Man, we don't know the details of all that's going to be there, but man, the grace of God, the goodness of God will be in demonstration forever and ever and ever. He will never run out of resources. Infinite grace will be lavished upon us simply because we were willing to humble ourselves, repent of our sins, and receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so it's amazing, this grace that we have. This is what today's study is about. And we're going to see um, it, it's something that is so huge. I mean, I'm not going to be able to you know, do it justice. Um, this They call it soteriology, this doctrine of salvation. So what if, what if that the only way that you could utilize electricity is if you knew exactly the science of it, how it all worked? Um, some of you here might know, um, but most of us don't. Um, what if you could only log on to Wi-Fi if you knew exactly how it all worked, you know, from point A to point Z? Um, some of you guys here, you might know how Wi-Fi works, but probably don't. But you still use electricity, huh? You still use Wi-Fi. You still use whatever, 5G, LTE. Um, this is kind of how it is with salvation. We don't know like all the details of it. And theologians, man, they, they have their debates. And there's a lot of things that we are just so deep. It's deeper than the ocean. But I do know this. I'm saved. I'm saved. All my sins were nailed to the cross. When God looks at me, he sees no sin. I'm not afraid to die because I know I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I know that I'm saved. I have experienced God. How many of you here, you can testify to that, that that's what happened to you. When you read your Bible now, you understand it. 
You know, when you go to church service, you can actually understand what the guy's saying. You have a desire to pray. You have a desire for others. This is, we don't understand all the details of it, but we know this, that I'm saved. I once was blind, now I see. I once was dead, now I live. As a matter of fact, that's where we were. If How many of you here came last week? I'm just curious. Were you, any of you guys here last week? Okay, and you still came back. Wow, I am proud of you, man. <laughs> because last week was a tough study. Last week, we found out we were dead, defeated, and doomed. Last week, we found out we were done. We were on a slippery slope without hope, headed for hell, and there was, man, we were messed up. We were, you know, caught up and defeated by the things of the world and the flesh and the devil. How, how we were rotten. We were rotting corpses. We were like zombies, walking dead. That was us. We covered that last week. And you guys were here. You sat through it, and you came back. I am so proud of you. <laughs> some of you guys, maybe some of them didn't come back. But, but, but look at what it leads to. I'm going to start in verse 1 here in Ephesians 2, and then we're going to pick it up in verse 4 for today's study. He says in verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, to trespass means you've crossed a line. To sin means you missed the mark. And so we were dead because of our rebellion and because of our failures. We were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, our fallen nature, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, notice, children of wrath, just as the others. Now, children of wrath, um, some might see that as just simply saying that we were deserving of God's wrath, but it, it might mean more to that. I mean, in one sense, it's like you are whom you mimic, and we were of the Adamic nature, and we were in one sense uh, like, you know, um, we were like devils. I, I even, I tell people this, I say, the only thing holding up my halo is my horns, <laughs> Because that's who we are apart from Christ. Now, some people, they don't, they don't see it that way. They think very highly of themselves. But I, I think we need to just be honest that, that if we lie, we're, we're speaking the language of, of Lucifer, that if we disobey God, that we're following the devil. That's where we were. But look what happens. Verse 4, but God... But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If you're saved, that's for you. If you're not saved, this is offered to you today. But you have to receive this gift. Here, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. He's writing to the saved. He reminds them of their past, how they were once sentenced as great sinners, but now they have experienced this great salvation. And I love the way that Paul gives all the glory to God to whom it belongs, because we were defeated, 
you know, doomed, dead. We were done, really, but God here changes everything. Those two words in succession are really some of the most beautiful words we will ever hear, we will ever read. It says there in verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy. You know, it's very important for us to know the distinction between justice, mercy, and grace. It's very important. Let's just say, for example, next year the Dodgers had another uh, banner season. And let's just say next year they won the playoffs. Wouldn't that be cool? And then, you know, they went on to the World Series. And let's just say it was going to be at Dodger Stadium. And anyways, you fast forward to next year and you're on your way to watch the game, game seven of the World Series, and you're going to go over to your friend's house and you're going to watch the game. And as you're there, you're on your way, you're thinking, oh man, you know what? There's going to be a lot of people there. And if I'm not uh, on time, all the good food is going to be gone. And so let's just say you were in a hurry. And what you ended up doing was you ended up, uh, you know, doing the California stops and you're tailgating and, you know, you're speeding and, you know, you're just breaking the law right and left. And so um, what ends up happening is that you're on your way, you're in a hurry, you want to watch the Dodger game over your friend's house, and what ends up happening is you see the lights in the mirror, the police officer pulls you over, and, uh, and you know, you're like, oh, man, uh, uh, this is not cool because I know that I've broken the law numerous times, over and over and over again. So if the police officer pulls you over and he gives you a ticket, That's justice. You deserved that, right? But there are those times, every once in a while, the police officer will pull you over and he just gives you a warning. He lets you go. Have you guys ever experienced that where you just got a warning? All right, um, that's mercy. He didn't give you what you deserved. Justice means you should have got the ticket. Mercy is like, okay, he didn't give it to me. But let's just say you told the police officer what you were doing, that you were on your way to your friend's house. You wanted to watch Game 7 of the World Series. And let's just say the police officer then pulls out these amazing Dodger tickets, and he gives you whatever, these $10,000 Dodger tickets. And he says, here, I just want to give these to you. I want to lavish this, this gift to you. I mean, in one sense, I mean, you deserve the exact opposite. But that's a picture of grace. That's a picture of what God has given to us. You know, and and when you look at what we deserved, that we were dead and defeated and doomed and done, it's just amazing to me how Paul paints this picture. And then what he wants to do is not just bring us to a place of fascination, wow, but of appreciation. God is good. You know, Spurgeon said, God soon turns from his wrath, but he never turns from his love. It's this mercy right here. We see he's rich in mercy. He's not a poor penny pincher when it comes to mercy. Uh, He doesn't give us what we deserve. And it's because of, we read right there in verse four, because of his love and not just love, but his great love with which he loved us. Not that we deserve it, not that we're lovely, but it's because of the fact that he is a lover. And in contrast, it says what there, we were dead in our trespasses. And so what that means is you weren't just dead. 
You were dead because of what you did. You, we were dead because of the fact that we willfully disobeyed God. We were dead in our trespasses because of what we did. And the things that we did were crazy. In one sense, we were all guilty of killing his son. That's how dead we were. We were dead in that. But God is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. See, now we're talking about this is the salvation that, that we've been, been given. I don't know if you believe it or not, because maybe you're here today and you're, you know, you're, you're not a good person. You're, you're messed up, whatever it is that's going on in your life, and you're caught up in, in sin, and you're just thinking, there's no way God can love me. Or maybe you're here today, you've been through a lot, you've been hurt by a lot of people, and you're like, well, well if God loved me, then why am I going through this? I mean, you know, the, the truth is, the, the, the demonstration of his love is that he died for you. I understand life is hard. I understand we live in a broken, fallen world and broken bodies. I understand a lot of crazy things happen in this world that we don't understand. But whatever you do, don't put that together and say, therefore God doesn't love me. No, he loves you because he made you, redeemed you. He died for you. Romans 5.8, it says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we're still sinners... Christ died for us. Can I ask you a question? Who else died for you? Who, who died for you? God did. Jesus did. God gave his son. And, and you got to let that sink in. It changes your life. It's overwhelming. I always tell people it's like the Amazon River flowing down to water a daisy, that he loves us as if we were the only one to love that, you know, when I think of life, and I don't know about you guys here, some of you guys, you grew up in a really good, solid family, some of you guys are, you have a great marriage or whatever, you know, people around you. I mean, do you have someone in your life that really loves you? Can you say that? Now, some of you here are like, yeah, I can. I, I can say, you know, my wife, my husband, my kids, um, my parents, you know, my sibling. I have this friend over there that I really believe they love me. Some of you guys, you, you might not really be able to identify anyone. Because love, love is rare. But, but I will say this, you know, even myself, I love my wife. But my love is not pure. There are those times, to be honest, and God's working on me, where there's some selfishness in my love. Like, I'm like, okay, if I treat her good, she's going to make me some chorizo con papas or something, you know. And, and, and all I'm saying is that God's love is pure love. It's pure love. It's not tainted with any aspect of selfishness. See, we were dead, defeated, doomed, done. We were on our way to hell, on that slope, without hope. But Jesus Christ, but God came, and he's rescued us. He's rich in mercy, meaning he doesn't give us what we deserve. And it's because of the fact that he loves us with this love that's so amazing. Corey Ten Boone said, Oh, love of God, how deep and great, far deeper than man's deepest Hate. It's in that great love that although we're dead and defeated, God has made us alive in Christ. By grace, we have been saved. 
You see the words right there in verse 4? And I know we're not getting far, but this is huge. This section of Scripture is probably some of the most important words in the entire Bible. And matter of fact, those two words, but God, they change everything. They really do. You know, it says, but, but God, who, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Saved. Saved from the power of sin. Saved from the penalty of sin. Saved one day from the presence of sin. Saved from the power of sin means that I don't have to get high anymore like when I used to be addicted to drugs. Or I don't have to get drunk anymore when I was an alcoholic. I don't have to look at porn be like I used to, you know, those people, they find themselves addicted. I don't have to get caught up in speaking that kind of language or the pride or just all the other things, the anger and the issues. And I, I don't have to because now I have the freedom and the power to make a choice. I've been saved from the power of sin. I've been saved from the penalty of sin, which is the lake of fire ultimately. And then one day I've been saved from the presence of sin. When we're in heaven, there'll be no more sin. That's what God has saved us from. You know, but the enemy says, well, wait a minute, Manny. I thought you used to get high and lie. And I noticed you still get mad and sad. And, you know, whenever you don't get your way, your ruffles, your feathers are all ruffled. That enemy says, but, but, but Manny, I know you. But Manny, you're still a sinner. Yeah, but God. It seems to me that a lot of times we don't really appreciate these two words in succession, but God. You know, the other day I was going through some scriptures, just pondering the different passages that have this combination, but God. And I want to share these with you real quick. This is a side uh, thing uh, to this, because I think it is important for us to know what a difference those two words make. I, I was reading in the book of Genesis when Jacob was mistreated by his father-in-law and his employer. So sometimes you get mistreated by family members. Sometimes you get mistreated by your boss, right? But we read in Genesis 31, 7, he, he said, your father has deceived me and changed my wages 10 times, but God did not allow him to hurt me. See, that's what happens when the Lord is there. That same man, Laban, had evil intentions towards Jacob. But we read in Genesis 31, 24, but God. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. In other words, God warned this guy and put some healthy fear in his heart. Why? In order to protect his son. You know, life gets hard. People will come after you. The devil will come after you. Your boss, you know, may mistreat you, family members. But God is for you. You know, life is hard. Death is hard. It's hard when someone dies, especially, you know, someone close to you or someone as grand. Uh, I was thinking of when uh, Israel eventually did die. It says in Genesis 48, 21, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. You know, some of you here, you have experienced the passing of a loved one, and you still haven't gotten past that. 
And, you know, your heart is, is broken and is wounded and is gashed and is gangrene and it's infected. And, and, you know, you need to let the Lord do this work here. Jacob said, I'm dying, but God still has plans for your life. You know, and then there's the issue of suffering in, in life, and that can be difficult. I was thinking about Joseph, who was completely abandoned by his ten brothers and sold into slavery. When you read that in the book of Genesis, uh, it doesn't get much worse than that. And yet, notice what Joseph revealed to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, he said to his brothers, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. You see how those two words change everything? You know, you got 10 brothers selling you into slavery. I mean, it seems like it's not going to get much worse than that. And you got 13 years as a slave. You got two years in prison the whole time. You're completely innocent. But then those two words, they become a factor. But, but God, he meant an evil. It's all part of his plan. He allowed me to go through that season of suffering because of the fact that through my trials, God is preparing me for a place where there will be something that's going to happen, believe it or not, in his case, it was, it was like the whole wide world would be blessed by him. You know, even the New Testament commentary on Joseph highlights those two words. In Acts chapter 7, verse 9, it says, And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. You know, we can go on and on. What a difference those two words make uh, regarding David. We read in 1 Samuel twenty three fourteen, Saul sought him every day. Think about that. Every day. But God did not deliver him into his hands. You know, those two words, they don't necessarily mean that life won't get difficult because there's purpose in the pain. But when the trials are heavy, and some of you guys here, you're probably going through heavy trials right now. I like Psalm 73, 26. It says, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, when you're a Christian, it changes everything. You know, we go through trials, but those trials lead us to triumphs. We stumble <laughs> But those stumbling stones become stepping stones. It becomes a mess. But that mess eventually turns into a message. God is working. It's different when you're a Christian. It's different when you understand mercy. It's different when you understand grace. Because when you understand grace, I mean, I love Pastor Chuck's book. It's called when, when Gra Gra Why Grace Changes Everything. I don't have to earn his love. I don't deserve his love. I never can. But it's finally sinking in that, 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 he, that he loves me. <laughs> you know, and we can go on and on. There are so many verses. I was even thinking about what's going on in our nation right now, especially in our state. And how we you know we were hoping maybe for God to turn the tide and put some godly people into office. But, you know, um, I don't know. It's just crazy what we see going on in politics right now. So we're praying and we're doing whatever we can. But, you know, there's a really cool passage in Psalm 75, 6 and 7. It says, exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God 
is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. You know, God is allowing our nation to, 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 to decay. Why? It's probably because he's, it's, we're, we're getting ripe for judgment. See, God is on the throne and it changes everything. You know, I was thinking about that passage in 1 Corinthians 1, 26, when it's talking about, you know, the way that the Lord calls the, the weak things of the world. It says, you see, you're calling, brethren, that not many mighty or wise according to the flesh. Not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world. He's chosen the weak things of the world. You know, when we begin to lose hope and we're having a hard time seeing anything good in our future, there's an interesting passage in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. It says, But I has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, we can't even, we can't conceive of it in ourselves. Like, is there anything good ahead of me? Because I can't hear it and I can't see it and I can't even feel it. But God, it says in verse 10, is faithful I'm sorry, God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. And when we're tempted, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. You see, whatever the situation is, and I've learned this in life, and I don't know how things are going with you at your house or your work or wherever it is that you find yourself struggling with this issue, with this, you know, whatever you think, it's a calamity, it's a tragedy, it's a tribulation, a situation that you're in, and, you know, and you're thinking, man, how can I have victory in this? And the Lord is there every single time. With the temptation, he provides a way out because God is faithful. You know, the devil even might, might try to kill you. You got anyone here like you're afraid to die? You're like, oh, man, I, I don't want to do the freeway. or I don't want to go flying on an airplane because I might, you know, crash. I mean, some people, they have a fear of death. But I always tell you guys, and I pray that you know it with all your heart, the invincible principle that you can't die until God says so. But the devil will try to kill you. He did with Paul over and over and over again. But I like what it says in Philippians 2.27. This is about another guy who almost died. It says, for indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, since I should have sorrow upon sorrow. You might worry about yourself dying or someone else dying. Last night I was on the phone with, with Bob Young, and some of you guys know Bob Young, and he's just been going through so many trials. And right now, he's got this crazy infection in his spine. And it's just crazy what's happening. He's having a very difficult time walking. And I'm thinking, man, he's in, in you know, this, he's going through so much, Lord. And he's an, he's an elderly man. But I, I love the faith that he has. He's not afraid to die because he knows that God is faithful. And then one day, when we do die, you know, I love what we read in Acts thirteen twenty nine and 30. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, speaking of Jesus, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. I mean, these two words, you guys, they, they change everything. 
How many of you know that God is for you? That, that, that God loves you? That God's with you? I pray you would know this. This, is, this changes everything. We don't deserve it, but we never will. It's time for us, I think, to open up our hearts, not to abuse his grace, but to, but to use it, to enjoy it, the grace he's given to us. See, he raised us up. Look what it says in verse 6. And he raised us up together with Christ and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, sometimes I look at my life. Think about it, man. I'm already 35 years old. And... um. I don't know why you guys laugh. But. And I'm like, Lord, what do you got for me? Like, what's my future? You know, I wonder, you know, and you wonder how many years you might have or whatever. What's the Lord going to do? But, but, you know, there's a lot of things really we just don't know. But there are some things that we do know. And it's kind of cool being able to read this right here. And it's just so amazing how blessed we are. Not only were we raised from the dead and then put on the ground, but we were raised from the dead. We went to the ground, standing on the ground and up to glory. That's what happens as, for us as Christians, right? It says right here, we've been raised up together with Christ, made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So as you guys are sitting in your chairs right now, you're seated also in the heavenly places. Now, what you're like, well, what does that mean? There's a, a lot of mystery on this. Like I said, we don't, we can't really get dogmatic about everything, but I will mention, uh, uh, suggest a few things. Number one, the fact that we're seated with Christ ha- has a, an, a- an aspect of it, th- just the fact that it's done. It's done. You know, you read the, 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 the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3, or Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, or Hebrews chapter 10, 11 through 14, and you read other passages as well, uh, what you find is that Jesus is the, the, uh, the, the ultimate high priest. And when you look at the Old Testament high priest, he never sat down. He was always working. He was always offering sacrifices. He was always, because the work was never done. But when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that he sat down. Because the work was done. And in one sense, that's the first part of it, that we're seated with him because the work is done. John chapter 19, verse 30, when Jesus died on the cross, he said to Telestai in the Greek, it is finished. So number one, the, you know, I don't know if you guys, you know, you work and, you know, you're on your feet all day. I'm thinking maybe someone like Mercedes and she's working, she's doing this thing all day. And then finally, when, you know, whatever, she takes a break or whatever, work is over. And then finally she gets to sit down, it's done. Well, that's the first part of it. As we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, number one, it's done. Number two, what that means is that we can now have fellowship with Christ like never before because what it means is that we are now invited to sit at his table. That's what it means. You know, it's really interesting in John chapter 12, uh, you read verses 1 and 2, and it talks about Lazarus who was raised from the dead. And then he was seated at this table with Jesus. You see, that, that's what it means. 
How many of you here like to eat? Oh, you all like to eat. But how many of you here like to eat with your friends and family? Isn't it cool? I love it. Uh, it's one of the joys of life. It really is. I, you know, I try a little bit to eat healthy. But um, when it comes to eating with my friends and family, forget it. I do, that doesn't matter. Man. <laughs> you want pizza? You want BJ's? That's fine. As long as we can eat together. Because I want to talk to you. I want to see how you're doing. I want to turn off that television. I want you to put your phones down. And I want to have fellowship with you. This is what happens when we are seated at this table. There's a really, really cool uh, portion of scripture in which God speaks to us the same thing. In Second Samuel uh, chapter 9, in which you guys remember when David became king. When David became king, um, a lot of times in those days, when the king you know, rose to power, he would kill all the descendants of the former king because you know, they saw them as a threat. But David wasn't like that. As a matter of fact, David looked for the descendants of Saul. He found the son of Jonathan. That was Saul's son. So this is Saul's grandson. And he calls him into his presence. He says, hey, there's one guy named Mephibosheth. And so David calls him into his presence. Now Mephibosheth shows up and he's thinking, man, I, he's going to kill me right now because, you know, this is the way it, it is. And, and what does David do? Say, David says, for the rest of your life, you will eat at my table. You will eat at my table. That is a picture. David was a picture of Christ. And how he invites us to eat at his table, even though we deserve to die. You see, seated with Christ, number one, it's done. It is done. The work is done. Number two, there's this fellowship that we have with Christ. This is so beautiful. And then number three, what it means, as a matter of fact, if you go to Ephesians 1, look what it says in verse 20, Ephesians 1, 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him, uh, from the dead and seated him, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So in Ephesians 1 verse 20, it says Jesus was exalted there, this place at the right hand of the Father, above every angelic, every creature. I mean, and then, and then it, it says here that we're seated with him. That's interesting. You know, the Bible talks about how we will rule and reign with Christ in Luke twenty two twenty eight or 2 Timothy 2, 12, Revelation 5, 10, Revelation 20, verse 4. So in, in one sense, uh, we're seated not that we're kings like Jesus is, but we will rule and reign with him during the millennial kingdom. And the Bible even says that we will rule the angels. There's something about that seat, about that place, that just is amazing to think that we were dead and doomed and done and on our way to hell and then the lake of fire, but he lifted it up off the ground and then he just catapulted us up to that place of glory. 
See, I think a lot of times the reason why we have unnecessary troubles is because we don't realize who we are in Christ. We have been seated in this place. It's sad to note that unsaved sinners roll themselves in the dust of the earth while saved sinners rule with Christ in the coming kingdom. We look at that and you see the contrast. You might wonder, well, why is he doing this? Why is God doing this? Look what it says in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. Notice again, in Christ Jesus. Now, why did God save you? Well, part of it, is because, you know, he wanted to rescue you. Um, he loved you. But another part of it that we see right here is because, like, I've, we've always learned this. We, we, we exist for the glory of God. And forever and ever, you will be a demonstration. You will be a trophy. You will be a trophy of the grace and glory of God. You know, when we're there in heaven, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to go but I'm probably going to look at you and I'm going to see you there in heaven and I'm going to say, wow, you're here? You made it? Man, God is good. <laughs> Forever and ever. And you're going to look at me and you're going to be like, wow. And you know, you will be an ex exhibit of his grace, uh, the riches of his mercy uh, you will be an everlasting revelation of his kindness. You know, as a matter of fact, something that was interesting, I remember a friend told me, imagine if you can, the great white throne judgment. Uh, and I don't know if we're going to be able to see it, but do you guys know what the great white throne judgment is? The great white throne judgment is where the non-believer will stand before the great white pure throne of Jesus Christ and they will be judged according to their works and because of the fact that they did not receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior their book their, their, their name will not be found in the book of life and therefore they will be cast into the lake of fire so I don't know if they're going to have an opportunity to have a discussion with God or not but if they do if they're there at the great white throne judgment and they're trying to, you know, offer their case or whatever it might be, they might say, they might ask, they might question, where's your grace? Where's your, where's your mercy? Where's your grace? You know what God will say? Right there. He's going to be pointing to you. See, we are an everlasting exhibit, display. We, it says right here in verse 7, he, he shows the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, these are probably some of the most important words in the Bible. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I would encourage you, just as a quick side note here, I don't know, what do you guys normally do after church service? You guys normally go get some food? How many of you go get food afterwards? How many of you go sleep? I'm just curious. No, just... <laughs> it's a beautiful day today, if, I, if it still is when I got here. I mean, just nice. So I encourage you guys to enjoy it. 
But here's something that I, I, I love you guys, I care for you guys, and I think this helped me. This is like a life-changing practice for me. When you leave a Bible study, somewhere along the line, it, it might not be the same day, maybe the next day, review what you study. Review it. Oh, yeah, I learned this. Maybe you wrote notes. Some people write notes, and they never look at them. <laughs> you know, look at your notes. Read your verse. Right here, verses 8 through 10, I'll tell you what, this is worthy of memorization. And some of you here are like, well, I don't do that anymore. Well, you should. Meditate, memorize verses 8 through 10 because this is huge. This is some of the most important passages in the whole Bible that were saved by grace. That's unmerited, undeserved favor. That It's not the, the love that saves us. It's the grace. And how do we get that grace? Through faith. As you believe on the person and work of Jesus Christ, not just in your brain. I would venture to say that there are some of you here, you believe in your brain, but you're not saved. Because it can't just be belief, intellectual assent. It can't just be in your brain. It has to be in your heart. It has to be faith. It has to be trust. This is how we're saved. By grace you have been saved through faith. Genuine belief and trust in the heart, in Christ, in his work and in who he is. What we find is salvation is a gift. Romans 6.23. It's not something we've earned in the past or will ever be able to earn in the future. It's not by a ceremony. It's not by a sacrament. You've got some churches out there, they say in order for you to get saved, you've got to go through this, whatever it is that they throw your way. You've got some people knocking at your door. You want to know why they're knocking at your door? Because their religion teaches them that in order to be saved, they have to do good works. If your trust is in your good works, then that is counted as a debt against you. Because it's not our good works that save us, it's our faith, our trust from the heart in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, recently our dear sister Margaret uh, went to heaven. You guys know, right? Some of you guys know her. She was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. She went to heaven. And someone texted me and said, I'm praying for her. And I texted him back. I said, what in the world are you praying for her for? She's in heaven. But sometimes you get these Catholics, they think that, oh, you gotta, they're in purgatory and they got to like purge their sins and pray for them. No, absolutely not. Be so careful that your faith is nowhere else other than Jesus Christ. This is the faith that we have. It's not a work. It's not a ceremony. It's not a sacrament. It's not circumcision. It's not baptism. It's not me giving to the church, going to the church, serving the church. No. As a matter of fact, it's not our work. We are God's work. That's what it says right here. We are God's work. We are his workmanship. It says that there in verse 9, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Verse 10, the Greek word is the word uh, poema. It's the, the Greek word is the word poema. Did anybody know what English word we get from that? Poem. Good job. Good job. Just seeing if you guys are awake, okay? You're his poem. One translation says, you're his masterpiece. 
it's interesting to me. It's not me working to earn my way to heaven. As a matter of fact, the contrary is that God is working. I'm his work. I'm his art. Uh, Pastor Chuck said a poem is a work of art from the artist seeking to express himself in his work. You are God's poem, his workmanship, and he wants to express himself in you. Think about that. That's beautiful. And that's the work that God is doing. And that's why it's so important that we simply yield ourselves to him. Because what God does, and I see it, and it's so beautiful. I I know a lot of you guys here, and it's just so cool how you, you are his masterpiece. You are his poem. You are his work of art. And you are representing God in such a beautiful way. That's what poetry does. It's a revelation, it's expression of the author's heart in order to share a message, something that's usually a little deeper. That's who we are. And, you know, you look at this right here, how grace has done this work, how how faith has brought it about, not intellectual information in my brain. It might start there, but eventually it has to go down 18 inches and reach my heart. So it's not just us knowing about Jesus. It's us knowing Jesus. Can I ask you a question today? If you were to die today, if you were to die, do you know for sure that you'd go to heaven? If you don't know, my encouragement to you, again, I I don't know all the ins and outs of soteriology. I'm not like the master theologian. I don't think anyone does. That's why you read commentaries and you got guys saying different things about it. We don't know a whole lot about it, but I do know this, that when you give your life to Christ and when you say yes to Jesus, when you make that decision to follow him, when you understand you're a sinner in need of a savior, somehow, some way, it's like the, the faith of a child that will save you. If you don't have that assurance today, I beg you, make that decision today. You want to know why? Because you don't have tomorrow guaranteed. None of us do. And you don't know if there'll ever be another opportunity like this. I mean, you want to make sure. You want to make sure. It's kind of like when you, you know, sometimes, I don't know why it's always like this in airports, man, but... You know, I know, remember one time we were going on a plane, me and my family, and for whatever reason, we got sent to the wrong direction, and we were at the wrong gate, and next thing you know, man, our, our, pl- our plane's about to, to leave, and, you know, they're calling our name on the intercom. Have you guys ever seen those commercials where the guys are running through the airport? Well, that was us. <laughs> but once you're on the seat, <sighs> thank you, Lord. We made it. That's kind of how it is. For salvation. I know a lot of you are saved. I don't know if all of you are. And that's why I pray that today you would give your heart to him. Not just in your head. But in your heart. Jesus died for my sins. He rose again from the grave. And I need him. To be my Lord and Savior. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God, in your heart, 
in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I like what Agent Rogers said. He said, I'm not against education, but you don't come to God head first. You come heart first. So you have to trust the Lord. Maybe you're here today and, you know, maybe, just maybe, because, man, we know it's so prevalent today that you're, you know, you don't want to live. You have suicidal thoughts. The reason why I know that's so common is because that's the world we live in and that's the lie, the enemy is just, man, he's propagating. I remember reading a story in the book of Acts chapter 16. There was a guy that was just about to take his life. He was just about to take his life. But God spared him. It says in Acts 16.30, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. You know, it's not a matter of works. It's a matter of humbling ourselves and receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and then realizing that we're his work. And we'll close again in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love this verse right here. It's some say in the Greek language that this is the climax. You would look at some of the other verses and you would think, well, those other verses are really the ones that need to be circled and underlined and emphasized. And it's true. But in the Greek language, he's moving towards this right here. And the explanation is that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works and, and, you know, that, so, so the big question is, like, what's the, the mission of my life? What work am I supposed to be engaged in? And you might be a husband or a wife. Um, that It kind of starts there. You might be a parent and then goes from there. And then, you know, you might other, have other um, roles and responsibilities. And, you know, some of them have a lot to do with family. But there's also more in the ministry. What gifts have you been given? What talents has God given to you? What is the work of God for you in your life? Because it says right here, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand. I mean, that's how huge it is that we should walk in them. And so I want to encourage you in closing And we're going to actually go through the whole book of Ephesians and eight times he's going to talk about our walk, our walk, our walk. It's our life. That as we live our our life as Christians, it's not always in the four walls of ministry. It's out there in the highways and byways, the valleys and alleys, wherever God calls you to serve. That as you're, this is how you discover, like, you know, I think about my, my, my brother John or my brother Henry or whoever it is, all you guys that are working for Christ, Raymond, so many of you faithful over the years, working, working for Christ. How did that happen? How did you guys end up doing that? You want to know how? They were walking. They were walking. That's how it works. <laughs> You know, for for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's how it happens. And life as a Christian is not complicated. It's not sophisticated. It's not religious. 
It's a relationship. And I walk with God. I walk with Him. And um, I try to follow Him. And He speaks to me when I read my Bible. And I get to speak to Him when I pray. And He tells me, hey, Manny, you know, go right, go left, go straight, stop, slow down, run, jump. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) All I know is that that's how it works. It's this beautiful love relationship in which we're walking with God. And the next thing you know, we're working for Him. And it could be in many ways. Maybe God's called you to be a pastor, missionary, a pastor's wife. I mean, you name it. There's so many different things. But it might just be like I was reading about this lady who she often visited a retirement home near her house. One day she noticed there was a lonely man just sitting there staring at his dinner tray. And so she went up to him and she asked, "Uh, is something wrong? And the man said, something wrong. He had a heavy accent. I can't do the accent, but he, he was this upset. Yes, something's wrong. I'm a Jew and I cannot eat this food. And so she asked, well, what would you like to have? And she said, I, I would like a bowl of, of this kind of soup. And so she went home and, and she prepared the soup. And then after getting permission from the office, she took it to the man. And she did that uh, week after week. She visited him often. And in the kind of food that he enjoyed, giving that to him from the heart, she eventually led him to faith in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you guys a question. Can making soup be a work of God? Absolutely. So start making me some I'm starting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Lord will show you guys the divine details. But I pray... Um, you know, we're looking at the, the country, the, the nation, the family. I always tell people the reason why our country is so messed up is because the church is so messed up. What if the church rises up and does what we're supposed to do? I mean, not just one or two or three, but everyone. Imagine what an awesome work that would be. But it all starts. It can't start there. It has to start in the fact that we have an awesome God who when I was on my way to the World Series, not the game, but my friend's house, to watch it, and I was doing California stops, and I was tailgating, and I was speeding, and I was getting mad at all the people cutting me off. (laughs) You know, when I deserved the ticket, you know, God said, no, let me lavish you with my love. That's what grace does, and it changes us. And so, Lord, I thank you for... Saving us, Lord, when we were dead, defeated, doomed, we were done. Thank you, Lord. And I just pray that uh, somehow, some way, I, I don't want to put a burden on anyone. I pray it would be more of a blessing, Lord. Bless your people. Uh, help us to go out today knowing we're seated with Jesus. And the enemy's under our feet. Give us that power, an awareness of what has happened in salvation. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who's not a Christian, that today would be the day, Lord, that they would receive you as their Lord and Savior. And if you're here today and it's only something that God can do and you want 
that assurance. You want Jesus. Then I want to lead you in a prayer. And you can just pray this prayer in your heart. But you tell him uh, that you really, really want to follow him. And just pray something like this. Lord, I, I come to you today and I admit I have sinned. But I turn from my sin. And today I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to live life as a Christian from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen.